Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode is slightly different to our normal episodes. What we're doing in uh, this one is we want to give an introduction to Boko Haram. As you'll know from listening to our podcast up to date, we've been going in-depth with a number of researchers about their key research into terrorism and extremism and counter-terrorism. However, to date we haven't had any researchers who have talked about the research of uh, one of the world's most dangerous and prolific terrorist groups. And we've also gathered as well, like as many of you will know, that there's so many researchers who would look at ISIS, so many who would look at Al-Qaeda, so many who would look at the IRA, but not as much uh, of our analysis is fo- focusing on this group. So I wanted today's episode to look at who Boko Haram are, what they've been involved with, and what way they have been countered, and what the future holds for this group. And I'm going to be, as, as with most of them, I'm going to be passing it over to someone who is much more of an expert in this area than I am. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, David Otto, who's the founding director of TGS Intelligence Consultants Limited, and most importantly, a former student of mine from the MSc in uh, Terrorism Studies, which is now the MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies here at UEL. We have to get a plug in at some stage. So, David, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure, uh, Dr. John, for uh, coming back to my old um, university, uh, of which I'm still very active uh, as an alumni. So, um, for our listeners, who are Boko Haram? I think, John, it's important, you know, uh, for our listeners to um, get very uh, broad understanding of the environment that Boko Haram found itself in. Um, before you can actually place Boko Haram within the setting that, you know, we found him today. And, and that is why, you know, in order for us to understand Boko Haram in northern Nigeria, as it is, you know, um, of course, you know, Boko Haram has spread not just in northern Nigeria, but they've gone towards northern Cameroon, Niger and Chad. But that is why it's important to have a little bit of a historical understanding within that specific setting in order for you to get, you know, how Boko Haram came about. Because within the West African, you know, uh, talking alongside, you know, with countries like Senegal specifically, you had one of the most famous uh, sheikhs, you know, known as Sheikh Ibrahim uh, um, Nies. Uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Nies, you know, was very influential, one of the most influential sheikhs who was from the Tijaniya sectors, you know, of you know, um, you know, the Islamic religion. So he was very, very powerful in terms of preaching, you know, the, the um, kind of the religious proliferation, not just in, in the, the olden days of Senegambia, but moving towards Nigeria. So he had a lot of influence in Nigeria. He had a lot of influence within Chad, within Libya, within um, Egypt, right up to Pakistan. You know, he was very powerful. And one of the things that we saw coming from people like Sheikh was that, you know, they then instituted, you know, a path within northern Nigeria where, you know, um, reminiscent of, you know, the caliphate that existed on that, the, um, the, the um, uh, uh, Osman Danfodio, you know, the Sokoto caliphate that existed. So within that area, they already had something of a caliphate, which, you know, groups like ISIS are talking about today. 
And because they had that, you know, groups within northern Nigeria, within Niger, within Chad, have always thought about how do we come back from this, you know, caliphate. Just after, you know, they had the infiltration of, of colonial masters, that is Britain and France. So they had always, you know, um, you know, looked upon a time when they can bring back what they saw as a caliphate within the region. And that is why, you know, Boko Haram is so important. Because, you know, Boko Haram came as a result of that. But let us fast forward, you know, looking at the years of 2000, when, you know, um, the, the, the Nigerian government, you know, moved from a military regime up until, you know, uh, to a democratic regime under Obasanjo, um, who was then the president. When Obasanjo came to power, he then introduced, you know, what we call the, um, uh, uh, the democratic system of government. And within that democratic system of government, 12 states in northern Nigeria decided that they wanted a Sharia practicing state. And within one of those states, you know, was, you know, the Bonu state, which Boko Haram actually emanated from. And then you had this young man, you know, Mohammed Yusuf, who had traveled, you know, within the Arab world. You know, he'd been to Saudi Arabia, he'd been to Egypt, you know, he'd studied wide and far and wide within the, within the area. He was one of the people that was running, you know, the championing of, you know, this organization that wasn't at the time, you know, known as Boko Haram. It was, you know, a religious proliferation movement that was formed, you know, to kind of, you know, look after the, the younger generation of young men and women who um, did not see themselves, you know, as being the privileged ones within northern Nigeria. So what happened was that, you know, as soon as we had the religious proliferation where most of the northern states were now clamoring for a Sharia um, uh, uh, um, practicing state, you know, the, you know, uh, Bonu state came into, uh, you know, into the picture. And, you know, they formed the, uh, what, what they called at the time was the, um, the Sharia Commission. They formed, you know, the, um, the Zakat Commission. You know, they formed the, uh, the Sharia uh, Free State Commission and the Legislation Commission within northern Nigeria. But then, importantly, in the year 2001, between 2001 and 2003, we had the governor of northern Nigeria who was known as Malakachala. Malakachala, he was, you know, um, a liberal governor. But because, you know, of the political dynamics of Nigeria, Alimudu Sheriff, who was a friend of the governor, then wanted to be voted as the next governor. Because he wanted to be voted as the next governor, he then sought the help of, you know, um, people like Mohammed Yusuf, who had a huge following. Because Mohammed Yusuf had developed what you call a philanthropist movement, where he was giving young men bicycles to ride, he was giving them businesses to run, you know, and he did this, you know, out of, you know, the zakat, which they were collecting from individuals and organizations, even, you know, from Saudi Arabia. But then what happened was, you know, they then decided to vote for Ali Mudu Sheriff on the promise that, you know, Boko Haram would then, you know, benefit, you know, uh, sorry, the um, uh, Mohammed Yusuf would benefit, you know, from the incoming government by having a Sharia state. But then, you know, after they voted for Ali Mudu Sheriff, Ali Mudu Sheriff, you know, then said, you know, everybody had to practice religion the way that, you know, it was practiced previously. So Boko Haram members at the time saw this as a betrayal. 
And what is important within that political setting is that one of the key members of you know, the then Boko Haram, you know, known as Bujifayo, was made the, um, uh, the, the commissioner of religion instead of being made the commissioner of Islamic affairs. So to the members of Boko Haram who had actually clamored to ensure that that governor was in power, you know, they saw this as a betrayal because by having a commissioner of re religious affairs, it meant that, you know, funds that they were supposed to receive from, you know, donor countries like Saudi Arabia could not come in because the, it wasn't the commissioner of Islamic affairs, rather it was a commissioner of religious affairs. So what happened at that point in time, if you look at the tactics that Boko Haram started using, was that Boko Haram saw this period, which is 2003, as a period of betrayal. And then what Mohammed Yusuf, who was the first leader of Boko Haram, did was to exploit you know, this betrayal by preaching to young men, idle young men and women, and saying to them, everybody who goes through a system of education that is linked to the West is corrupt. They are corrupt because, you know, not only are they not providing for the necessities that young people are supposed to have, but also because, you know, they betray, you know, their promises. And when they get to power, they, beca they become power hungry. And um, this is what Muhammad Yusuf did. And because he did that, most of the young people began to write at the back of their bicycles, Boko is haram, which meant, you know, anybody who's gone through a Western system of education is corrupt. And because they started writing about this at the back of their bicycles, the government then came, you know, uh, the, the government saw this as a threat because this was becoming, you know, the numbers of the young people who were riding these bikes was increasing. And then what Boko Haram had to do, what the, the government had to do was then to impose a helmet regulation in order to stop these young people, you know, from, you know, riding these bikes. It was an indirect way of clamping down on them. But then what happened was, you know, once they introduced the motorbike regulation, instead of the police to stop and enforce the law that if you're not wearing a motorbike or educate the young people on the reasons why you needed to wear a motorbike, they would stop them and collect bribes. And once they collected the bribes and they went back and said to Mohammed Yusuf, we went to work and the police stopped us because we didn't have helmets, but they didn't seize our bikes, but they collected bribes. So Mohammed Yusuf used this to intensify his message of how corrupt the government was. And this is what led to the immediate um, a proliferation of Boko Haram because most of these young men began to defy the police because Mama Yusuf said, they're not stopping you because you know, they want to enforce the law, they're stopping you because they want to collect bribes. Mm -hmm. And I am trying to give you a life which the government has not been able to give you. So what the government did at the time was to instruct the police that anybody who doesn't stop should be shot. And then what happened was, you know, a couple of the few men who did not stop were shot, and the Boko Haram group carried, uh, you know, a procession, which is in 2009, carried a procession of the dead bodies walked within the streets. But before they did this, they had actually ordered 10 guns, you know, to defend themselves. But unfortunately for them, the, the person who was asked to order the bullets to match the guns was a mole for the government. So he ordered the wrong bullets. So what then happened was, you know, during the, the march, the, the marching, the, the marching protest, when Boko Haram was marching with the corpses of the, the mates that had been killed by the police, the police retaliated and killed almost 700, you know, young people within that period of time. This is what kicked off with Boko Haram. But the original name of Boko Haram is 
Jamatu leader, uh, Jamatu leader Awatid al-Jihad, which is you know to do with the proliferation of religion for for the Muslim people. So the Boko Haram was merely you know a name that refers to the frustrations of the young people, and that has been picked up by the media. And today we they are known as Boko Haram and one of the most dangerous organizations. They they moved from just buying ten guns to becoming even more dangerous than ISIS today. And so it, it took a long time. They didn't start as a group who were a paramilitary or a terrorist group, that they were, the, that it was in reaction to, to the police uh, and the government's reaction to oh. them that they picked up, pick up weapons. Of course, John, you, you would know, uh, you know that um, Sean McStuffin of the IRA said, you know, um, uh, revolutions are not started by, you know, uh, revolutionaries themselves, but by the stupid reactions of, of government security forces. And that is exactly what happened with Boko Haram. You know, it began as a religious movement, which of course was clamoring for Sharia mm-hmm. in northern Nigeria. But you all had, you had other states in northern Nigeria which were already practicing Sharia. They already had, you know, um, uh, the, the Sharia uh, law in place. They already had people collecting zakat, you know, already. So they had all the systems in place. But Boko Haram was much more specific because, you know, it then became a religious and political affair where the government, you know, of the time, you know, used, you know, the influence of Boko Haram members to get itself into power. Mm-hmm. But then what then happened was that, you know, the government could, you know, the, the, the government at the time could not actually, uh, sub, uh, you know, uh, sustain the pressure from Boko Haram. So if you look at the tactics, Mm -hmm. the attack tactics of Boko Haram, it gives you a very good understanding. From the year 2003 up until 2009, most of the targets were members of the political parties of the government. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, when they targeted the members of the political parties in government, the police also got involved because the police was meant to protect the members of the political Mm -hmm. parties. So if the the next uh, targets of Boko Haram were then the police because the police got involved, but then Boko Haram now started attacking from the police. Once they attacked the police, then, then they saw an opportunity not just to attack the police, but to also collect weapons mm. from the police. They collected the weapons from the police. Then they went towards attacking prisons because, of course, they needed people that could fight for them. So once they attacked prisons, they got people out of prisons, you know, gave them the choice of whether you want to join Boko Haram or you want to you know, uh, go back to prison. That was kind of a, of a very, very easy choice. So you had this movement from attacking the members of the political party to them attacking the police, and then you know the army was then called in as an emergency response. But the mistake that the government of Nigeria made at the time was to bring an army which was trained for a conventional warfare mm. to fight a group that was embedded within the communities. Mm. But the army couldn't then identify who was a member of Boko Haram and who wasn't a member of Boko Haram. That is what led to Boko Haram uh, attacking the army as well. Mm. Because at the time, you know, the army did not have that kind of liaison within the community. So they couldn't be trusted by the community. They too couldn't trust the community. And that is what led to the formation of the Civilian Joint Task Force. Who, who is this Who is this task force? This the Civilian Joint Task Force, you know, was made up of ordinary young men and women from mm. northern Nigeria who where, you know, the way that it was created was, was not by voluntary means, but it was because, you know, once the army had been called in and the army was being ambushed, mm-hmm. left, right and centre by members of Boko Haram, they had no strategy. Mm-hmm. So what they did was, you know, if the army suspected that a young man came from a certain village in the north, 
where you know they suspect that he was he was in charge he was uh, guilty of the attack they would go there in the morning and raid the whole area and get most of the young people in that area sh shot so it created a problem where the young people thought if we don't create a civilian joint task force where we can point out where each and every member of Boko Haram lives, then we would become a victim you know, from the forces of the army. So that is how the civilian joint task force was forced to be created by the young people who thought we either show who is a member of Boko Haram or we fall victims ourselves. So they then formed, you know, this civilian joint tax force made up of more than 30,000 members mm -hmm. all over the north to be reporting to the police and to point out who was a member of Boko Haram. And that itself changed the dynamics in mm -hmm. the way that Boko Haram used to attack. Yeah. So they, they moved from, as I said to you earlier on, attacking, you know, the local politicians to attacking the everyone, including the members of the civilian joint tax force. Because at that point, it became the people against Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. So if you pointed out the member of Boko Haram, maybe because you didn't like them or, you know, for, for revenge or any other reason, then, you know, the, the army would get them and get them shot. Mm -hmm. So that created a situation where Boko Haram had to move from the city in Maiduguri to Sambisa Forest. Okay. And that is how Boko Haram transferred his base, you know, from, from the city to the Sambisa Forest because it was no longer convenient for the members of Boko Haram to stay in the society where they were being pointed out. Yeah, and going back to the leader, uh, Muhammad Yusuf, um, what kind of role was he playing at, these, at the origins and what effect did his demise have on, on the organization? Muhammad Yusuf was a very, very powerful orator and he understood how to take advantage of what was happening in the backyard. Mm -hmm. And to show the people, the young, especially the young people who were unemployed, you know, uneducated, you know, had nothing to do. He he had this very charismatic way of, you know, using, um, the, you know, the Quran, you mm -hmm. know, to then convert it to what was happening within the societies. Okay. And he did that very well because, you know, Muhammad Yusuf, as I said to you earlier on, studied not just in Nigeria or, you know, in, in within the Central African region. Mm -hmm. He studied in, uh, in Egypt, you know, he, he was in Saudi Arabia. So he gained a lot of knowledge on how to actually bring together all these young men. So he had them in thousands. Because what did he do? He, he, he was very good in terms of using um, the, the kind of a business model mm -hmm. where he would sponsor, you know, young people, you know, buy them motorbikes, you know, give them something to do show them that he was doing what the government, you know, was unable to do at the time. He saw he was, he was, he was so powerful and he was so much liked. Mm -hmm. And that is why you remember we, when we had the, um, the, the conference here at UEL in, mm -hmm. in 2015, you know, that is why, you know, people like uh, Barrister Aisha Wakil, who is famously known as Mama Boko Haram, mm -hmm. that is how she met Mohammed Yusuf. Because, you know, Mohammed Yusuf was very much within the societies and what this lady used to do, and many other women in Nigeria used to do, was to then cook food for these young people that Mohammed Yusuf, you know, was training. And they would give them this food as free food, what they call the zakat. You know, they would give them free food, you know, and they would have it. So that is how powerful Mohammed Yusuf was. But he wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. Because one of his key allies is very important in the way that Boko Haram has transformed, who is uh, Mamanu who was the second in command. Mm -hmm. Mama Nu was, you know, originally from Cameroon, you know, or is originally from Cameroon. He came from Cameroon and he was the second in command. And he then introduced to um, uh, Mohammed Yusuf 
um, Abu Bakr Shikaro, who is the current leader of Boko Haram. Yeah. So Mamanu was the number two, but when he introduced Abu Bakr Shikaro to um, Mohamed Yusuf, Abu Bakr Shikaro, who came from the same area like Mohamed Yusuf, became the number two. Mm-hmm because he was he's also a canary so he became the number two but he was more of you know the less talk and the more action guy mm. Mohammed Yusuf was very diplomatic you know let's do the talking you know let's refrain from too much you know action you know much more contradictory to what Shekau really wanted mm. so this is how you had that transformation mm. and that is how powerful Mohammed Yusuf was until in 2009 in July when he was captured, amongst many others, by the police. While in police custody, he was executed. And his, his, uh, his body was actually shown on, on, on live video. And, you know, this was one of the key issues of leadership decapitation that actually, you know, acts more as, you know, uh, uh, as uh, an intensification mm-hmm. of a crisis rather than actually, you know, resolving the crisis. So the death of Mohammed Yusuf in the hands of the police was a clear indication to most of these members of Boko Haram that what Mohammed Yusuf was saying to them about the role that the government plays, about the role that the police plays, is actually true. And they then used that opportunity and the charisma and the bloodthirstiness of someone like Abu Bakr Shikau to move from an organization that was merely using clubs and sticks to an organization that has become one of the most deadliest today. Yeah, and this is this is something that you you stated earlier on. You you said that it's one of the most deadly and in a way more dangerous than ISIS is. Yes. So how did what was the evolution from then on, from uh, around 2009 up until today? What was the evolution in tactics and what kind of tactics do we see them using today? The Boko Haram's tactics have, you know, shifted depending on two factors, one of which is internal factors and external factors. In, internal factors being how the government, you know, decided to handle the, the crisis. So, for example, you know, the introduction of the military tactics meant that, you know, Boko Haram, instead of looking at, you know, the local drive and, you know, stab and drive and shoot strategy, which they were using before, they then were now interested in more sophistication. Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, from the time when the military came into place, Boko Haram began to look for allies. And they then took advantage of the porosity of the Lake Chad region, which comprises of the borders between Cameroon, Niger, Chad, and, and, and northern Nigeria. And then what happened at that point was that, you know, the crisis that was going on, that, had already, that was going on in Libya, you know, after the, the, the Arab Spring, mm. you know, have then led to a proliferation of arms through Mali. Mm. And what people like um, Mama Nu, who was the second in command, used to do, he was a very, very good network guy. So he's the one who then took Boko Haram from a local organization and then linked Boko Haram with the um, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which is Akim. So that is why Boko Haram... That was the first movement from a local organization to an international or regional organization in terms of, you know, it having affiliations with Akim. And then what happened with Akim was that Akim then had affiliations with Al-Shabaab. And from that point in time, Boko Haram was not only training some of his forces, but then they were exchanging fighters between Al-Shabaab, Akim, and Boko Haram itself within that region. And that is how the organization then moved into 
Northern Cameroon, mm -hmm. using that as um, kind of a, a base, you know, to plan the attacks. And that was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And once the Cameroon government reacted to the presence of Boko Haram in their region, then Cameroon also became involved. Mm -hmm. And the same happened with Chad, the same happened with Niger. But the changing point in Boko Haram was in 2015, when they then pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. And the reason why Boko Haram pledged allegiance to the Islamic State is because, you know, Al-Qaeda, you know, Bin Laden, of course, had been killed. And, you know, um, you know we also know that, you know, um, Abu Bakr Shikau had written letters to Bin Laden. The CIA revealed, you know, documentations that it got from Abu Tabad showing um, uh, Mohammed uh, Abu Bakr Shikau's letter, which he wrote directly to Bin Laden, you know, pledging his allegiance. But then what happened was, you know, Shikau was then under pressure from people like Mamanu to switch allegiance to, our, to the Islamic State. Why did they do that? Because, you know, the Islamic State, you know, came as a result of, you know, they brought up this idea of, of a one caliphate mm -hmm. and one caliph. So what then happened at that point was each and every local jihadist group that has the same ideology was forced to actually make itself relevant by pledging allegiance to the Islamic State, something which Shikau did not want. And how did we know he didn't want that? Because, you know, uh, Mamanu, when they split from Boko Haram, when, you know, Al-Qaeda, uh, sorry, Islamic State, of, uh, Islamic State actually, when they changed the leaders, you know, of, of, uh, of Boko Haram, Mamanu wrote a letter explaining the reasons why the Islamic State had actually dethroned Shikau in favor of the son of Muhammad Yusuf, known as Abu Musab al-Banawi. Okay. So we, we saw a situation where, you know, um, Shikau was forced to pledge allegiance because Shikau has always wanted Boko Haram to be a local organization, mm. not to lose, you know, kind of his authority. And that is why even though he joined the Islamic State of West African province, he was still carrying out his attacks based on their own principles, based on Boko Haram, not based on what the Islamic State of West African province wanted. Mm -hmm. So that is why he continuously used young girls to carry out suicide bombing. He used young guys to carry out suicide bombing, something which the Islamic State surprisingly, you know, said, you know, we don't want you to do that because, you know, you're, you're tarnishing the credibility, you know, of, you know, our image. Our, I don't know what kind of image that the Islamic mm -hmm. State really has. But this was one of the reasons why the Islamic State somehow said to, you know, Shikau, we don't want you to do that. Mm -hmm. But the key to that, I think, was because, you know, of the Chibok girls. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Chibok girls, you know, is something which has to be understood in its dynamics within Nigeria, you know, and also within the Boko Haram setting. Because, for example, in the Kanuri tribe, you know, if, if, a, if young men are being looked after by a leader, it is the responsibility of that leader to be able to look for them wives. And this is one of the things that Mohammed Yusuf was doing when he had these young men, he would give them money to marry wives, he would give them money to look for jobs. And so when Abu Bakr Shikau inherited all these young men who were fighting for him, he needed wives for them. And that is the reason why he then, you know, embarked on kidnapping the girls in Chibok. But then once they had been kidnapped, and all this issue of the media came in through, you know, uh, Michelle Obama, who was, yeah. a, you know, the first lady, you know, bring back our girls, and it became a media frenzy. Boko Haram then saw in these girls a golden chip, something which they could use.
to then, you know, negotiate the way forward. But not just that, but something, women that they could also use to keep the young men who were fighting for them in place. Okay. So it was some kind of, you know, creating a family environment where, you know, the organization will be more sustainable. So this was kind of a change, you know, as the dynamics on ground changed, Boko Haram also changed its strategy. So they then changed its strategy, not just from a local organization, but having affiliations in, within the region, you know, pledging allegiance to the Islamic State, but then losing that allegiance again. Because when the Islamic State then said, you know, Shekau, we don't want you to be our leader anymore, Shekau withdrew himself and then retained the original Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. But then because of the split, you had Boko Haram splitting into three factions, mm -hmm. one of which was Shekau's faction. Then the second faction was the faction of the late son of Muhammad Yusuf, the, 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 uh, the son of Muhammad Yusuf, um, Abu Musab Banawi, who is currently the leader of the Islamic State of West African province. But of course, in 2012, as we know, Boko Haram had already split, you know, um, and Mama Nu had taken from the group called Ansaru. So you still have these three organizations, yeah. although they cooperate and coordinate sometimes, but they act as separate organizations. And have we seen feuding in between these groups? I know you said they cooperate, but have we seen, uh, as we'd see after a lot of splits, uh, those internal rivalries where there's actual violence between these groups. Yes, they, there was a time, especially just when the Islamic State then uh, denounced Shekau as the mm. leader, when the, the, the violence was reported between the group of Shekau and Al-Banawi. Mm. But this was one of the first times when we could actually see a direct conflict between a local terrorist organizations that had the same ideology, but a different means of mm. achieving it. Because in, in, in essence, what um, the, 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 the Islamic State uh, uh, faction was saying is, you know, Shekau was being too brutal, okay. you know, and that he was using more women, you know, to carry out, you know, attacks, very young children to carry out attacks. He was drugging them. He wasn't feeding them well. You know, he wasn't taking instructions from the, the caliph, you know, um, uh, 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 al-Baghdadi. So we could see at that very short period in time, a conflict that was existing between Shekau's faction and the faction of Abu Musab al-Banawi in collaboration with Ansaru under Mamanu. So we had that faction, that factional uh, uh, tension that existed. But what we always have is, even though these groups have these factions, they always have this understanding that you know their differences are less important than the goal of achieving a caliphate. So even though you have these, you know, factional splits, mm. you know, you still have them focusing on the ball. Mm. And that ball is to create an Islamic caliphate, mm -hmm. you know, which, you know, they've always revered to create within that region. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the suicide attacks and mm. um, using young men, young women as well. Uh, who are the targets of the most recent suicide attacks? Have the targets changed? And of all the violence as well, have, have these targets changed or it's, is it still the police, the state? Um, and who else is? The, the Boko Haram has, is, has um, eventually changed you know, its targets to involve everyone and anyone who okay. is seen as an enemy. Whether you're seen as a close enemy or far enemy, you know, Boko Haram would attack you. Because you know, as I said earlier on, the, the targets have changed according to the involvement of different countries and different parties. You know, for example, in 2011, close to 2012, you know, Boko Haram carried out the attack in Abuja, which, you know, at the UN's uh, uh, head office in Abuja, yeah. and that killed more than 25 people. That was an indication that, you know, they were not just targeting local 
um, targets, but also they were interested in targeting the international community. They've kidnapped most of, you know, most people from the West, you know, they've kidnapped people from America, kidnapped, you know, so they've, they've, they, they've, they've, they've implemented a different array of tactics. You know, they, they now attack even mosques, you know, they attack Christian churches, because, you know, what they then consider is that, you know, this, the whole community is against them. Mm -hmm. And according to their version of Islam, you know, whoever is against you, you know, is an enemy that must be eliminated. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is what Boko Haram has tend to be doing these days. You know, they do not have a friend. What they have is everyone who is not with them mm -hmm. is against them. And that is why you see, you know, that it is not only the army which is being targeted, you know, it is not only the foreigners who have been attacked. It is not only the mosque. You know, even, you know, schools have been attacked. They've burned down more schools, you know, than any other organization. More than 30,000 schools have been burned down within the region. Mm -hmm. You know, women have been left as widows because their husbands have been killed. You know, the northern Nigeria has the greatest number of widows in any area within West Africa because of husbands that have been killed as a result of the crisis. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, an organization that has almost done everything in the books. Mm -hmm in terms of the way that it's carried out its tactics, you know, its attack tactics. It's carried out attacks against each and every organization that you can think of. We went to this area in northern Nigeria, we spoke to the educational establishments, you know, they told us the same thing. We met the traditional rulers, you know, you know, who were also victims of the attack. We met people from interfaith organizations who also had been victims of the attacks. We met government personalities, you met the military, the local people. So you realize that it is an organization that moves according to the trend of the environment. Mm -hmm. And what has then left Boko Haram today is that Boko Haram you know, attacks each and everyone that comes its way, irrespective of whether you, know, you are a member of an international organization coming to, to give relief efforts. Mm. It is so desperate that its strategy is for everyone. And how, is the, how are they financing uh, this widespread uh, paramilitary activity? What a lot of people have underlooked, you know, in terms of the Boko Haram's capabilities, in terms of how if it actually gets its finance, is that, you know, people have tend to look at Boko Haram from, from official, from, you know, kind of the way it appears. Mm -hmm. But what Mohammed Yusuf, you know, did, you know, during the period between 2000 and 2009 was very significant. What he did was he funded a lot of young men to do businesses. He funded a lot of organizations, you know, that, you know, were carrying out local charity work. And what then happened was that, you know, as these men grew up, you know, within their businesses, they have what you call an inherit right, you know, to pay zakat. And because they pay zakat, you know, it means that, you know, people who are fighting for Boko Haram who cannot do any work because they're fighting as members of Boko Haram have to be able to have this zakat. And what Boko Haram used to do, you know, in the early days from 2009 up until 2015 was to move from house to house, you know, getting the rich people to contribute to the cause. If you can't contribute money, then you can contribute your son or your daughter. You know, if you can't contribute, you know, um, you know your son or your daughter, you know, if there's nothing else you can contribute, you probably get killed. So they knew, you know, who had the money and who didn't have the money because, you know, they were living within the community. So it's not like a community which they were not aware of. Mm -hmm. They knew who had money. They knew who could contribute to the organization. And that is what caused a lot of rich people to flee mm -hmm. from the north because, you know, they were forced, you know, to pay money to Boko Haram 
whether they, look, they liked it or not. So this organization, they had then developed this arena of you know, financing. And up until today, whichever community they rule within, people pay the money in order for them to sustain. Of course, you know, you would have uh, what you call the crime terror nexus, mm -hmm. where criminal activities, you know, they carry out criminal activities in order for them to fund you know, their activities. You know, but you know, the main uh, sources of finance of Boko Haram is still really, really under, understudied. Mm -hmm. Especially when you have people who travel out of the country, you know, um, there is no database knowing where they're going, who they talk to, where they get their money from. So it is a very difficult, you know, um, uh, finance, you know, system to understand. But they take advantage of the environment. You know, you have the Lake Chad region, people who do fishing, people who do farming, you know, so they sell petrol. So there are different ways that Boko Haram raises its finance, mm -hmm. you know, which, you know, in a way is, is a pot which is difficult to dry. You know, as long as, you know, the government cannot really get hold of the environment that Boko Haram operates in, it would be difficult for the government to stop its finances. And what way have Boko Haram uh, been countered, not just at a state level, but locally as well as by uh, private organizations as well? What way, what tactics have been, strategies? Have been? I think the first tactics that the, the, the government employed with Boko Haram was the kinetic strategy, which was to do with, you know, um, fire for fire, oppression, fire for fire. You know, the government then used that strategy because, you know, at the time, they didn't really think about or they didn't have an option you know, to understand the dynamics. So it was, it was a situation of uh, shoot first and then aim later. Okay. You know, so the government then shot and then realized that, you know, well, we, we're missing. Mm -hmm. So we then have to retract. But then it was too late. You know, so what has been happening within the local setting is that, you know, the government has decided to deploy the military. But the problem with the military is that the military does not have the leverage you know, for them to understand the community. The military is highly trained in terms of conventional warfare. The military is not trained to fight, you know, people who are invincible, so to speak. You know, they're not trained to fight because military training is based on intelligence. Mm. But if you can't get intelligence from the same communities which you're trying to fight against, then you're always going to be on the back foot. So the way the government has done it, from 2015, the government then declared, uh, changed the, um, the headquarters from Abuja, of the military to uh, to northern Nigeria in my degree. What that meant was that you know the, there was a prioritization of the military tactics, mm -hmm. and then Boko Haram knew that that would be that would be a victory for them because mm -hmm. you know the military could not identify mm -hmm. who is a member of Boko Haram and who is not a member of Boko Haram. So the local strategy that the government has always put in place to target Boko Haram has been a little bit ineffective. Okay. You know, even though they de they've declared in so many occasions that, you know, Boko Haram has been defeated, it's been technically defeated, you know, um, they can no longer carry out attacks. But once they say that, the next day, Boko Haram carries out an attack. Once they say the leader, leader has been killed, the next day he comes up with a video and says, here am I, still breathing, I'm still mm -hmm. carrying out attacks, you know, I'm going to carry out more attacks. So that propaganda, that messaging strategy which the government has tried to use against Boko Haram hasn't really worked. And why has it not worked? It hasn't worked. It's because, you know, the government assumes that the people that Boko Haram, you know, has much influence in are also listening to the radio. Mm -hmm. But when you go to these areas where Boko Haram has the most recruits from, these people don't know what the government is saying on the news. They don't read newspapers. They have no radios. They have no televisions. The only information that they get is from Boko Haram.
So when the government comes up on, on Twitter or on the news and says, we've defeated Boko Haram, nobody within the area which is that information is supposed to go to gets the message. Mm -hmm. So the group continues recruiting. It continues doing what it's doing because it understands that the dynamics of the region cannot really give that affordability for people to be able to understand the messaging that the government is going through, that the government is putting through. They tried the strategy of emptying the village and calling it in peace, which meant they went to most of the villages in the north and took out people and put them in IDP camps. But what happened was once they took out the people from those villages, they then took them out with Boko Haram members as well. Oh, okay. Because they couldn't tell who was a member of Boko Haram and who wasn't. The mistake number two was, you know, they then had them in IDP camps, but they couldn't provide sufficient, you know, facilities for them. The facilities that could provide corruption was, was, was one of the, the, the problems that was existing within the camps. People that were meant to be distributing the food were stealing the food. And then what was happening was Boko Haram was using that within the camps to radicalize people and say, listen, the government, you know, doesn't have anything to offer, you know, we are better off. So a lot of people within the IDP camps began to think we were better off living in our villages where Boko Haram is and eating rather than living in IDP camps mm -hmm. and, you know, dying. So that strategy that the government used, in, you know, for them to isolate Boko Haram within the forest did not work. Okay. You know, it didn't work because they didn't know who was a member of Boko Haram, they didn't have sufficient resources, you know, to sustain people within the IDP camps. They didn't have sufficient intelligence and trust within the IDP camps for people to say to them, this is what is ongoing. So Boko Haram continued to profit, mm -hmm. you know, with the strategy that the government was using to resolve the problem. Of course, internationally, they then created the multinational joint task force, mm -hmm. which was, you know, a task force based between Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon and Benin. This was strictly a military force. But then the problem that they had with the multinational joint tax force, you know, was a reflection of the same problem that the Nigerian government had within Nigeria. So the way Cameroon was fighting it was the same, like the way that Nigeria was fighting it. But more to that, you know, the trust between Cameroon and Nigeria wasn't there because of the previous conflicts that Cameroon and Nigeria has had with the Bakasi Peninsula. So there was an issue of mistrust, you know, and then you then had this multinational joint tax force where everybody wants to play God in terms mm. of we are the ones who are going to defeat Boko Haram. We don't want to, sh we, even if they share information, they don't share the information on time. You know, they share the information, but it's half information because, you know, you don't want him, he, the one country to have, you know, leverage over another country. So it became problematic, mm -hmm. you know, to manage, you know, the existing multinational joint tax force. And because everyone is doing their own, Boko Haram takes advantage of that mm -hmm. because he knows that the communication strategy of one country is not as effective, you know, to be shared with another country, made worse by the extensive and porous borders that you have in that region. So these are some of the ways that, that the, there have been failures in countering Boko Haram. What would you recommend would be a worthwhile strategy that... Are, what way do you think they could be defeated or could, could they be defeated? I mean, the way that, you know, you could tackle Boko Haram is to walk back mm -hmm. to the original reasons why this group came into force. Mm -hmm. And, but not just that, but, you know, look at the environment in which Boko Haram came out from. The first thing is to win the trust of mm -hmm. the people. 
because no terrorist organizations, especially one like Boko Haram, can live for a day without the support and the trust of the people. The people within the communities are responsible for keeping the secrets of Boko Haram. They are responsible for helping Boko Haram's logistics, you know, giving them food, you know, giving them electricity, giving them money. Mm -hmm. These are the same people that, you know, the government has to focus on. Any strategy that the government uses that alienates the people, when they use the kinetic strategy and drop bombs and it kills people within the communities, what happens is you radicalize more people against, against yourselves. So I think, you know, the, the, the most effective strategy that can be used, you know, to defeat Boko Haram is, first of all, the government has to find a middle ground to talk to some of these, some of these factions, you know, to then stop, you know, the, this is what we call the disengagement strategy, disengage them from the violence. Once you've dis succeeded in disengaging them from the violence, this is something that, you know, we were trying to do when we succeeded in getting some of the Chibok girls out. It was all about a strategy of disengagement mm -hmm. rather than a strategy of swapping girls with fighters. Mm -hmm. Because once you swap girls with fighters, what happens is you're back on square one. Yeah. You know, the group gets back its fighters, you get back your girls, but then the fighting continues. Mm -hmm. So I think the government has to look at that disengagement strategy. But more importantly, the military has to be able to coordinate with the police. Mm -hmm. The police has to be able to coordinate with the local communities. But at the moment, there are no guarantees of peace and security within northern Nigeria. And then you still have problems within the Fulanese, as we mentioned earlier on. You've got problems within the Fulanese in the, in the middle belt of Nigeria. You've got the secessionist movement, you know, called the Biafra and the IPOP, yeah. you know, within the southern region. And then you've got within northeast, uh, northwest region, you've got, you know, the Shia militias who are also threatening part of the country. So you have all this, you know, even if the Nigerian government succeeds to tackle Boko Haram, mm. of which, you know, I don't see that happening, you know, tomorrow, yeah. unless, you know, these strategies are effectively implemented, then they still have, you know, other groups which they have to tackle within the middle belt. Mm. The Fulani militias have become the fourth most dangerous terrorist organization in the world, you yeah. know, in terms of the number of, you know, people that they've killed. So the government has a huge... It's, problem in his hands really it's it's it seems like once you you want to solve one problem there's going to be another one popping up who, who are the fulani militia or the fulani herdsmen as well who talking about them you know the fulani headsmen you know came as a result of a natural crisis that has existed within that region of africa mm -hmm. between fulanese and local farmers mm -hmm. um, in, in a simple term the, the fulanese have their heads which, you know, they move from one region to another because, you know, they want to feed their heads. Is this and cattle? This is cattle, of course. Yeah. And, and this is, is, is a cattle. And the reason why this has been the case, where you've had a frequency of movement, is because, you know, of the desertification of the Lake Chad region. Mm -hmm. You know, the climate change has affected a lot of the, the, the Lake Chad region, regional countries. So because of that, you know, the Fulani heathers are now moving towards areas where they can find you know, farms to, you know, uh, to actually feed their cattle. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is, you know, when they travel, their, their, their cattle trample upon the crops okay. of local farmers. Mm -hmm. And then it causes, you know, um, you know, uh, you know a, a, a crisis between the Fulanese and the local farmers, which now leads to them killing each other. But the reason why, you know, this has been 
more proliferated at the moment is because you know there hasn't been a proper implementation of you know regulations on how to actually you know have these farms how to have you know uh, uh, local farm local farms you know being excluded from ranching areas so there is no proper law in place even if there is in place the implementation is lacking so what has been happening recently is that you know within the the, the middle belt region of northern nigeria benue taraba kogi and all these areas the farmers have been clashing with the local Fulanese. But the biggest problem is that, you know, criminal groups have taken advantage of the crisis. And you have cattle, cattle rustlers, you know, people who go and steal cattle, mm -hmm. you know. And because people steal cattle, you know, from these local Fulanese, they then go and buy arms, you know, to protect their cattle. And once they buy arms to protect their cattle or hire gangs to protect their cattle for themselves, you know, it becomes a tough war. So the crisis has gone to a point where, you know, I believe, you know, that looking at the dynamics of the crisis and what has happened in countries like Mali, in countries like Niger, that, you know, terrorist organizations, jihadists, have now infiltrated, you know, these local farmers who may have gone on the side of jihadist groups, you know, to look for protection. So what has happened now in Nigeria may, in the most likely outcome, because of what happened in Mali and Chad, that, you know, jihadist groups are now taking advantage of the crisis and they are now protecting and saying to the local Fulanese, come, we're going to protect you. Okay. And what is happening is, is, now, is there's now an attack between the Fulanese and the local farmers. Mm -hmm. And once the local farmers re re retaliate, the Fulanese will also retaliate. So the crisis has been duped the Fulani header crisis. But actually, it is much more than the Fulanese because of the sophistication of weapons which have been used. Wow. It looks like we're going to need to do a special episode on the full and ease. I think, so. yes, yes. I think we need to do that because, mm. you know, it is, it is really um, uh, one of the biggest problems, you know, besides Boko Haram that the Nigerian government is facing at the moment. Mm. Um, and, and I don't see how the government can be able to cope yeah. if you have a crisis like that, you know, taking place alongside a crisis like Boko Haram. Mm. Because, you know, what has been happening is, you know, people have been decapitated, children, you know, killed, you know, um, uh, houses, you know, arson committed. So it has become one of the greatest, you know, nightmares for the Nigerian government. But I think it is a time for them to be able to isolate mm -hmm. the real Fulani crisis from what else is happening, you know, within that dynamics. Because, you know, if you don't isolate the crisis, you know, from the people who have taken advantage of it, what you have, you know, you have a mix and match of, you know, different interests within a local crisis. So if the government can be able to then put in measures to stop the Fulanese from perhaps, you know, moving out of their areas to, you know, provide them ranching zones, mm -hmm. that would then isolate the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it would then stop the conflict that the farmers are having with the Fulanese. And once that happens, you know, any other organization that has been taking advantage of the crisis will be exposed. Mm -hmm. But if you still have the normal Fulani crisis, you know, happening within the region with the local farmers, you would have people just like, you know, in every opportunity, you know, in every um, uh, chaos, you know, there is opportunity. So people would always take advantage of that. When we, before we press record, I said, we want to do about 25 minutes to half an yeah. hour. I've noticed we've gone to 50 minutes and I could talk to you for another 50 minutes now. But we're going to 
be doing this as a two-part episode. So today's episode where I'm talking to yeah. David and next in next week's episode, I'm going to be talking to Hilary Matves about her research on the role of women in Boko Haram. But before we finish up here, David, um, we've got, well, we hopefully have a number of academics who are listening to today's yeah. episode. What do you think the key research questions that, or the key issues in relation to Boko Haram and overall uh, terrorist activity within Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, areas like that. What do you think the key research questions should be and where should researchers be focusing? I think, you know, looking at the crisis, you know, within uh, Boko Haram and, and taking it from a very African context, I think the key issues, the first one is the role of the military. And the, the role of the military in terms of how do we have, how do we convert the skills of the military to be able to be adaptable to an asymmetric warfare? Mm-hmm. Because the military has solely been trained for conventional warfare and they've been taxed you know, to get engaged in asymmetric warfare. How do we actually adapt the role of the military to then be able to have that skill that they can be able to communicate with the local communities. I think that is very, very key because, you know, the military has recently been involved in a lot of, you know, face-to-face engagement with the communities, but they lack the skills in terms of, you know, how they can create that cohesion. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the areas. I think the second key area is, you know, how we can, and that's one of the things that we're working on at the moment, is how to build local community empowerment, how to empower local communities so that local communities can be the solution providers. Because all these organizations, ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, they all begin as a result of local incentives you know, and local dynamics. If we can have the local communities to be empowered so that they can have the necessary skills to be able to approach these problems before even they get worse, then we would have a better and much more proactive you know, um, uh, uh, a result. But what we don't have today is we have the policymakers very, very good. We have the local councils very good, the local police very good. But when it comes to the people who are the local communities who are supposed to implement the work, the local frontline practitioners, they lack the necessary skills. They lack the necessary support. So I think that would be if the local chief resolves the problem, then the local governor doesn't have to resolve it. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, for taking your time to, to talk with us today. I found it hugely informative, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, so as I said, next week we're going to have the second part of this uh, this Boko Haram special, where I'll be talking to Hilary Matves about her research on Boko Haram and the role that women play. As always, be sure to follow us uh, on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. But until next week, I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.